0: We are already in a world in which power supplies can be taken down by hackers. Um, You know, the water supply could be tainted. Um, You know, industrial espionage, um, particularly as the Internet of Things has become um, such a bigger part of our lives in which everything is connected, not just us as consumers with our smartphones, but industry, Uh, the power uh, grids that that we depend on, if these things go down and there were say a war footing or even a natural disaster footing, one could imagine something like this having been of great use during Hurricane Katrina. That to me is very, very realistic. Now, am I going to want to order, you know, push my button in the the, um, Star Trek canteen? I I don't know, probably not soon, but I'll tell you. DARPA's got a pretty good track record of turning things that seem science fiction into reality and the internet and GPS and uh, stealth drone (laughs) fighters would be good examples. I could go on, but uh, I wouldn't wouldn't count them out.
1: (laughs) Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Koldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it, so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron.
3: All right, uh, thanks Niels, and um, welcome everyone. So. If we want to find a happy place between autocracy and oligopoly, between the power of big government and large corporations, we will need to find new ways to retether wealth in place. That line from the book we're going to talk about today really struck me because I think it summarizes what a lot of us are feeling, and our guest today is going to take us beyond that feeling and show us how a prosperous, localized economy can be created by talking about people and organizations that are already making it happen. Uh, She's Rana Faruhar, um, who many of you know from her writing at the FT, where she's a global business columnist and associate editor. She's also CNN's global economics analyst. She's published three books. Um, The first one was called Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. That was shortlisted for the FT's Book of the Year Award in 2016. Her second book, Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles, was the Porchlight Business Book of the Year in 2019. And she's joining us today to talk about her new book, which came out last year, called Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. So, Rana, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
0: Oh, Kevin, thanks for having me.
3: So I think it's pretty clear uh now that we've sort of passed peak globalization that the west and china are kind of moving in a direction to set up competing economic ecosystems instead of one integrated one but you obviously (laughs) saw this coming before a lot of us did and i was just kind of curious was there kind of like a, a specific aha moment for you or was it just kind of the buildup of things over time that led you to this realization? And, and, um, you know, when did you, when did you start thinking and, and writing the, uh, this particular book?
0: Um, well, thanks for the question. And I guess my, my short answer would be yes. And yes, I did have some (laughs) aha moments (laughs) and, and, um, I definitely felt, I had a felt experience of this for gosh, you know, I would say 15 years or so now. Um, I, you know, going back to my days at Time Magazine, I actually wrote about the reindustrialization of the US. I wrote a, a piece in, I think it was 2010 maybe, or 2011 about that. And um, I wrote, even before that, I wrote a a kind of a, I guess, awkwardly titled uh, cover story called Go Glocal. That was like my, my, uh, my attempt to blend local and global at the time. But, you know, these were coming from a sense that, wow, following the financial crisis, I mean, we really became unmoored as an economy, um, you know, from from Main Street. And, um, you know, I think the financial crisis was kind of a veil that was lifted on that. And the fact that our our U.S. economy had become too financialized, too service-oriented, too consumption-oriented, that there needed to really be a better balance between production and consumption. So that was something that I was kind of hip to for a while, and we can, you know, go into more detail. It also comes from the fact that I, I grew up in the rural Midwest. My dad ran factories, ran a small manufacturing business, and I definitely saw the sharp end of the globalization stick um, over the last few decades. So that also informed my experience. But in terms of um, aha moments I ha- I've had a couple I would say I would share. Um, having traveled a lot in China um, over the last 20, 25 years or so, I remember arriving you know, for my first trip, second trip and just thinking, wow, I wonder why everybody thinks that this country is going to kind of come seamlessly into the Washington consensus. Because, you know, it's a large, diverse, rich, you know, culturally, um, socially, economically, country with its own traditions, its own long history, and that was just very clear to me from the get-go. And also, you know, the Chinese have always been very, very open about the fact that they protected certain sectors strategically. That that the state and the private sector were not separate by and large. Um, you know, or there was they were not as separate as they would be in the West. And so, um, you know, I remember in particular having a conversation once with a head of a, a wind company, Danish wind company um, that was number one in the market several years ago in China. And I was asking the CEO, you know, how are things going for you? And he said, Oh, they're great. You know, we're I think we're going to be number four in the next five years. And I was like, Wait, why is falling from the first slot to the fourth slot a good thing? And also, how do you know so precisely? And he said, Well, that's what Beijing's told us. And I thought, okay, so why are we all pretending that this is really um, a free market or the same kind of free market uh, that we have in the West? I, I should say, I don't believe that there's really any perfectly free market, um, uh, you know, out there. But so that was one felt experience, and then, um, and then the other thing, and I guess this really was the thing that made me want to write this book. I had a conversation actually when i was reporting my first book makers and takers with richard uh, trumpka the former head of the afl cio he passed away a couple years ago and we were talking about trade policy in the 90s and i was asking what were some of the conversations he was having with the clinton administration um, during the signing of nafta and in the run-up to china's accession to the wto in 2001 and he said that a policymaker from the administration had come to talk to him at that time and he said, look, this is really, some of these deals are are really going to kill U.S. labor. You know, what's the plan? And the policymaker said, well, look, we know this is going to be tough for U.S. workers, but don't worry. Eventually, wages are going to rise overseas and, you know, things are going to equalize globally. In the meantime, you know, you're going to get a lot of cheap stuff and um, consumer prices will go down. And Trumpka said, huh, OK, well, how long is that process going to take And the policymaker said three to five generations, which to me reflects any number of things. One, the hubris of the economics profession that thinks that you can kind of magically and perfectly mathematically uh, model such a complicated transition. And also the idea that, you know, certain parts of the economy and of the country were really going to be sold out. And there was not a national conversation about this at all. Um, and I just felt it was really important to look more deeply at those questions.
3: Did you feel that, and I mean, I think I know the answer, I'm I'm kind of guessing I know the answer, but did you feel, you know, writing about this stuff 10, 15 years ago as a kind of voice in the wilderness, was it, was it frustrating for you to be kind of raising these issues when all the momentum seemed to be going in the other direction?
0: It wasn't frustrating because I always just believed um, in the validity of what I was saying. And I got a lot of support from people actually on the ground doing business in the real world. In fact, it's interesting. I've always had a lot of business people saying, yeah, I think you're onto something here. Um, and economists who, you know, frankly, not enough of them come out and actually you know use inductive reasoning and are, are talking to business people and kind of monitoring the real economy. They're kind of too many of them are still in the ivory tower. So I got a lot of pushback from economists, from laissez-faire policymakers. But um, yeah, I, I just felt that this was where the current was headed. And um, I wrote my first piece about deglobalization at the FT five years ago. And I remember, it's funny, people were just like, what? But actually, to his great credit, the, the editor at the time, Lionel Barber, sent around a note and said, everybody read this. This is important. And... Um, and the FT, despite being a very, very, l- I will say neoliberal publication in some ways is also a very curious and intellectually open place and, um, you know, welcomes contrasting opinions. So I've always felt very empowered to write these things.
3: I, I, I want to spend most of the conversation talking, not so much about the, the problems of globalizations, but the, you know, kind of the the solutions, because I think that's kind of the the interesting bit of the story that maybe most people aren't familiar with. Um, that, that said, I, I, one question that I, I would like to ask that just kind of p- kept popping up to me as I was reading the book was, you know, if we think about the model that has brought so many people globally out of poverty, you know, really including, you know, including China, but also before China, Japan was a very poor country, then Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, all these countries have benefited from globalization. All these um, people have benefited from globalizations. And more importantly, you know, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, these are countries that are not culturally similar to Europe, yet they developed as part of the global economy, they became democracies. In fact, you have a whole chapter on Taiwan as kind of like this a great kind of laboratory of new ways to um, manage democracy, which I, I wanna talk about. But so my question is, if we move to this new world, does that mean we're not gonna see uh, other countries develop and you know become sort of integrated and, and maybe democratic over time?
0: So there's a lot in that question. Let me try and unpack it. The last point is perhaps one to start with, this this notion that as we trade more with other countries that they will be richer and thus freer. And that I think has been a very mixed bag, let's face it. Um, you know, there have certainly been some countries that have become more democratic as they've gotten richer. There've been probably equal numbers, and certainly by GDP, if you count China as the main um, example, uh, that have gone the other direction, have actually become less free as they've gotten richer, particularly under this, this regime, the Xi Jinping regime. Um, but there are an, a number of other countries that you could say the same thing about. So I think the idea that free trade is, in and of itself, an adequate foreign policy is largely being discredited. Um, there are still some folks that are kind of hanging on to that idea, in part, you know, for the same reason that folks hang on to the shareholder value model, it's easy. There's one metric, more trade deals, raise the share price, like, and everything's fine. These are these are easy concepts and we want to believe them, but I think the world is much messier. Now, in terms of, um, you're absolutely right, your point is well taken that, the last 40 years of um, global integration have led to more global wealth than ever before. so if you look at the period leading up to the financial crisis between 2003 and 2007 that was the greatest global growth on in history actually that period. Um, and it's 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 worth noting that that's right in the middle of that is when Tom Friedman wrote the world is flat right because everybody thought all boats are rising and this is the future it's the end of history. Well, it wasn't the end of history because um, one of the problems with the neoliberal model of globalization is that it assumes that capital, goods, and people are all equally mobile. And capital was certainly mobile, which is why you got tremendous wealth creation. Goods were somewhat mobile, people much less so. And so the, the ramification was even though you got a lot of global wealth, you also got tremendous growth and in inequality and a hollowing out in particular of certain parts of of um, the industrial um, parts of the of the developed world, and that to me has led to an unsustainable politics. Um, I'm I'm the, one of the people that believe that more extreme politics on both the right and the left, not only in this country, but in many parts of Europe, are not just down to racism or white nationalism or you know um, uh, sort of um, identity issues, but are really down to an ex- a, a kind of a, a sense of gosh. I'm living in a country and I'm paying taxes in a country where policy is being made at the 35,000 foot level, not in my economic interest. And so I feel disenfranchised and I become angry um, and we are not creating launch pads and new ways of servicing the needs of those parts of the population. And that's largely down to the U.S. That's not China's fault. But I think that you know it's been well shown by research like the China shock that came out of um, you know Harvard and MIT, that David Dorn, David authors, Gordon Hanson research that there has never been a period in which there has been such an exchange of cheap capital and cheap labor between two countries, the US and China, and that was bound to create imbalances which are actually problematic for both countries. And that it is healthy and normal and natural to move to a little bit more of a regionalization, a little bit more of a localization, a little bit more of a balance for both countries, better balance between production and consumption. And that's where I hope we're headed.
3: Okay. Well, let let's talk about some of the areas that that you know you think we can kind of relocalize um you, you start the uh, i think chapter two in the book is um called the problem with big food and then you sort of talk about the agricultural system that we have in the u.s but also um a, a little bit about uh, europe and france um did you <laughs> i was just kind of curious personally like did you start with big food because of your own personal experience growing up in a small town in indiana i think that just kind of resonated with you
0: well, again, it was it was a mix of things. I mean, certainly growing up in the middle of literally miles and miles of corn, <laughs> you know, ninety nine percent of which was destined for either um, cattle feed or processed food. Um, you know, with crop sprayers going overhead uh, and creating um, problems with asthma <laughs> as a child. Yeah, I would say that that definitely impacted my my view of big ag. But really, I decided to focus on that because after the pandemic, that was just such an interesting and obvious area where there had been problems. So, you know, you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, we're all suddenly locked down and yet there's this bizarre supply and demand mismatch where, you know, restaurants are shut but grocery store shelves are empty and m- farmers are throwing away meat and milk. And it just was such a strange dynamic. You know, Efficient market theory would say that supply should have simply gone to other areas of demand and it didn't do that. Now, why didn't it do that? Because um, the whole system of agriculture, which is just an extreme example of um, concentration that exists in many industries in, in the U.S., which has increased over the last 20 years, is owned by about four companies. Depending on you know, if you're talking about grain, it's about four companies. Meat, it's about four companies. So incredibly concentrated industry. Now, when you're uh, a big food company, you you know follow finance 101. You want to move cost off the balance sheet. You want to um, really create very siloed, concentrated production lines. And so that led to a system where there was one supply chain for restaurants, another supply chain for grocery stores and never the twain shall meet. And that's not what efficient markets are supposed to do. They're supposed to actually adjust in real time and um, be much more nimble and flexible. But what I found, and I certainly found this in my first book too, is that the Chicago School Efficiency Theory way of managing business tends to lead to extreme concentration an extreme efficiency, I'll put that in quotation marks, meaning it's cheaper, it's faster, but that's only the case if nothing is going wrong. If you have any kind of a supply chain disaster, be it a pandemic or a natural disaster like a tsunami or a trade war or, um, you know, any other kind of geopolitical incident, which, by the way, are happening more and more frequently, um, about every three years, there's a major supply chain disruption, then you've got problems. So. I started digging into food, and the more I dug, the more I found that, gosh, this model has so many negative externalities that come with their own costs. You know, obesity in this country. I mean, we are we essentially have a food system that is designed to maximize calories, which it did very well, and there were good reasons for that. You know, during the Great Depression and um, the transition in the earlier part of the 20th century, where rural populations were moving into cities. There was a need for uh, farmers to produce a lot more cheap calories. Well, we got there. We're now producing about three times as many calories as the average American needs, but we're way short on the sort of healthy foods, produce, fruits, vegetables, um, you know, sustainably raised foods and meats. We don't have enough of those because we have incentives that are pulling the system in the wrong direction. So I could go on, but that's, that's really the reason why I started to look at food.
3: Yeah, it, it's funny as you're saying that I, um, you know, for a long time I ran an investment business and we had, a, you know, quite a big client in Jefferson City. So I would fly into St. Louis and we would drive to Jeff, Jefferson City, Jefferson City is the capital of uh, Missouri. And, you know, that was like a three, three hour drive and you're driving through. Just miles and miles of farms and we would stop you know occasionally to get lunch and we couldn't get any fresh vegetables for lunch and I was like this is crazy it's like there's um we're in the middle of, of farm country and there's no fresh lettuce or, or fresh tomatoes so I I totally got it when you, you talked about that you, you you um talk a lot of in your chapter about um Molly is it John or Jen?
0: Yeah, um, Molly, a, Molly John, uh, J-A-H-N. Um,
3: J-A-H-N, yeah. And she had this great quote that's um, that said, we've seen abundance as a risk management strategy instead of diversity in crops and varieties, and which is what really what she's just said. The goal has been to produce as much calories as possible, and that's our backup plan. And you kind of talk about her career a little bit. She started off as a researcher, and then she eventually ran the agricultural school at the University of Wisconsin. And now she's at um, DARPA, and you say she is working on, quote, reinventing the process by which food gets made. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what she's working on and why you think it's so important that you highlighted it in the book?
0: Yeah, no, Molly, Molly is a wonderful story, wonderful example of how you can really fix things and make them better. Um, So she has a program at DARPA, which by the way, for those, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners know that DARPA is like, where geniuses go to come up with the internet, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's really it. You don't get uh, your your own program at DARPA unless you're 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 pretty amazing, which she is. Um, so Molly actually came from a family of plant breeders, Canadian plant breeders, and so she grew up um, actually coming up with new varietals. Um, if you go into the grocery store, you're liable to see some of her squashes and different vegetables that she's created. Um, and as she became a a scientist and agronomist and and kind of moved into more uh, deeper areas of research in this field, she began to really start to um, see some of these negative externalities, and in particular, the nexus of food, fuel, water, the environment, health issues as being kind of one big problem, not separate problems. So if you kind of go back to that big food model, that you know, idea of incentivizing the overproduction of, you know, three or four cash crops, corn, soybeans, um, and so on. That's very hard on the land because in order to keep making a piece of land produce the same yield over and over again with the same crop, you have to keep using more fertilizers, more chemicals. So that creates issues with the environment. It creates issues with water supplies. Of course, you know, much of our agriculture is going to support cattle Uh, which is a huge problem with global warming. Um, The the fuel costs of all this are tremendous. And so she started thinking, gosh, you know, this is dangerous. And it's also a highly concentrated industry. And she was interested in national security issues and started thinking about um, California, which is where a lot of um, production of the calories we actually need, healthy fruits and vegetables are, are done, but also in a very highly concentrated way. And she was like, wow, you know, what if a terrorist attack, for example, took out um, a few of the major farm production um, factories and, and, um, you know, the workforce in California, and it would just be really devastating very quickly um, to the country. And so she started thinking of national security implications. She started thinking of the implications for the financial markets, you know, with insurance companies having to underwrite a lot of these disruptions. And so she thought, well, what would be the silver bullet way of fixing this? And she started thinking about decentralization. So kind of the opposite of what we have now. We have a model that sorts for big and cheap. And she thought, all right, how would you create a much more diversified agricultural sector? Now, there there are certain ways that that's already happening. Community farming is becoming a bigger deal. Um, Uh, There are some technological examples of how to make farming local, vertical farming. I looked at that in my book, too. But she wanted to go further. And (laughs) it sounds sci-fi, but it's actually happening. Create almost the sort of system that you have, um, you know, like in Star Trek, where you can literally push a button and sort of constitute your own food supply Um, She started looking at um, microbes and how microbes could be used um, and manipulated to do just that. And um, she has come up uh, with a kind of a, a soup, a microbial soup that can be used as a food source as long as you have air and electricity. And the idea is to try this out on the military first. Um, with the notion of all right, let's say I'm a, a Navy SEAL going into some hostile territory, and I may have to be in a in a, a difficult environment for three months, and I have only my battery pack and the air I'm breathing. How can I feed myself? Well, she the DARPA is working on creating different kinds of foodstuffs um, that can be constituted using essentially air. Water and electricity. And um, eventually, the goal is to turn these things into stuff that you and I would actually want to eat, not just survive on. So, shakes and power bars and different kinds of foods. But it's really quite profound because it's all about decentralization. It's all about how can I go hyper local with something that is strategically important, a real necessity. And that's something that you're actually seeing folks in other industries think about. I mean, we're seeing that to a certain extent in uh, the semiconductor supply chain. Um, We're seeing it in um, critical minerals, you know, all kinds of things that, hey, what do we really need to run a 21st century economy and survive as human beings? And how can we make that a little more diverse, a little more resilient, a little more local, and in her case, hyper-local?
3: And... um so do you see her work as something, I mean, I know you said that, um, you know, eventually her goal is to, to, to make it something that can be you know used not just for the, for the military, but, but more generally, I mean, is that, is that realistic? Uh, I'm just listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking, well, I can see the military applications. I'm not so sure. Um, I could see, you know, going into, going into a restaurant and ordering, you know, having them just create my own meal out uh, of scrap you know specialized for me based on her ingredients. I mean do, do do you see her vision as as realistic in that sense?
0: So what I see as very realistic is this as an emergency solution for a set period of time in a world that in which geopolitical events may become a real reality. I mean, you know, we're moving, we are already in a world in which power supplies can be taken down by hackers. Um, You know, the water supply could be tainted. Um, You know, industrial espionage, um, particularly as the internet of things has become um, such a bigger part of our lives in which everything is connected, not just us as consumers with our smartphones, but industry, our, are uh, the power uh, grids that, that we depend on. If these things go down and there were, say, a war footing or even a natural disaster footing, one could imagine something like this have having have been of great use during Hurricane Katrina, you know. Um, so that to me is very, very realistic. Now, do, am I going to want to order, you know, push my button in the in the um, Star Trek canteen? I, I don't know, probably not soon, but I'll tell you, DARPA's got a pretty good track record of turning things that seem science fiction into reality. in the internet and GPS and uh, stealth drone <laughs> fighters would be good examples. I could go on, but uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't count them out.
3: <laughs> no, and, and you know, you do. You also uh, talk a lot in that chapter about uh, vertical farming, and particularly a company based out uh, just near where I am in South San Francisco, and that that's actually happening in real time. And you know, I'm. I'm seeing some of their products that you know, basically are, are grown in, in a warehouse, fresh vegetables showing up in my local supermarket. And uh, as you say, right now, vertical farming is kind of cost competitive with a, a sort of Whole Foods, but um, there's no reason to think that, that longer term, you know, it couldn't be cost competitive with you know, kind of Safeway. So, um, and that, that solves a number of problems.
0: Yeah. And that that would be the trend, as you would well know, you know, in in technology, as more iteration happens, as there are greater numbers of users, costs go down. So I've already seen that happening, actually, just in the time that I've been reporting on these topics over the last few years.
3: So let's pivot a little bit and talk about uh, another area where you see, um, you know, opportunity for localization, which is in uh, manufacturing. You have a chapter called um, Why Making Things Matter. And, you know, I, 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 it really comes across in your book how passionate you are about manufacturing. I mean, I'm guessing some of that is coming from the fact that your, your dad was an immigrant from Turkey and, and had a manufacturing business. Um, but y- you start the chapter on manufacturing with a quote from a Harvard's, Harvard Business School professor where you say, the ability to make things is kind of fundamentally fundamental to the ability to innovate over the long term. So when you outsource, when you downsize, not only do you lose jobs, but you kind of lose the ecosystem of kind of production and R&D where there's this kind of virtuous cycle of continuous improvement in ideas. Um so that that's why you know it's important to have manufacturing capability not just to create quote unquote good jobs but to you know kind of develop and innovate over time and um you know that it, you point out that that's kind of like how silicon valley got started um with this kind of vertical integration but you know in how do you then resist the natural tendency to you know, as, as the business is successful to go to specialize, to get bigger and to kind of, you know, uh, break up those pieces of, of R and D and, and, production.
0: So that's a great question. And again, a lot there, let me, let me go back maybe and um, give a little bit of history. So, you know, I've been following manufacturing for a long time because as you say, I knew it, I grew up in factories. I was always interested in, that process. And I was particularly interested, you know, my, my dad spent a lot of time with the workers in his factories. And I think maybe because he came from a country in which the paradigm was different, I, I really I think didn't have your traditional big company approach to labor. You know, he saw labor as an asset. And this is something that other countries like Germany and Japan, you know, have never really lost Korea that um, working with labor to create products and to better understand the process of innovation um, and incremental innovation in particular was always important. Now, um, in the last um, 20 to 40 years, depending on where you want to put the marker, um, there's been a tremendous amount of outsourcing just for cheap, right? And China became the factory of the world. But in recent years, even going back 15 years or so, there's been a shift in what made sense to outsource and what made sense to concentrate in that way. So let's just take a low margin industry like furniture or um, shoes and apparel. That actually started regionalizing well before the financial crisis, certainly before the trade wars, because a lot of ceos were thinking okay the 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 trade-offs between cheap which was becoming less cheap as wages rose in asia energy costs the complications of bringing things over long periods of time weeks or months um during you know in these far-flung supply chains that just didn't seem as as good anymore as it used to and the, whereas the time to market the ability to Um, create faster production cycles, which consumers really want, you know, people have gotten used to having things in stores more quickly and having more variety, that it made sense to do more local. So that was already changing. And then you take the Made in China 2025 plan, which actually came out in in a year before Trump took office in 2015. And China kind of put down a line in the sand, not, not for any bad reason. I think it was actually a good reason. They said, look, we are now wealthy enough that we are both a consuming and a producing nation. And so it makes sense for us to keep more of our own production at home for our local markets and to have a more regionalized supply chain. And we think that is actually gonna help us um, get up the middle market ladder more quickly and become richer, and that this is going to be good for our economy. So they then started regionalizing. Then you have um, the Trump administration coming in, and in particular Bob Lightheiser, the trade rep, saying, "Okay, you know what? We're done with um, China violating WTO rules. We are going to enforce some of these issues now." And then you get, um, you know, the trade trade sanctions, tariffs. Um, but then you get the Biden administration saying, post-pandemic, post-war in Ukraine, wait a minute, we maybe need a little more resiliency here. And so a lot of countries start saying, gosh, in things like PPE or energy or food supplies or semiconductors, maybe it doesn't make sense to have so much concentration. If you look at just an industry like semis, you know the idea that 92% of all high-end semiconductors have been in the last few years produced in Taiwan – I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense for anybody. I mean, U.S., China, Europe, it's just a very, very fragile system. And if one thing breaks, everybody's in trouble. So then you start getting the sense of, gosh, resiliency is actually better for the bottom line. And that combination of things, and then add in technological innovations like additive manufacturing, which maybe we could talk about, I think you just get a lot of tailwinds towards more diversity in terms of where you're going to do production and how you're going to do it.
3: Yeah, we had uh, Chris Miller on the show um, who wrote wrote Chip War. And um, I mean, that's just, you know, shocking, right? That basically all the advanced chips in the world are made by one company and they make it using a machine that's made by a single company in the Netherlands that, you know, is just mind-bogglingly complex. So, yeah. And as, as you were talking about that, I'm thinking, well, yeah, you know, instead of maybe thinking of this, splitting uh, as bad. Maybe if, you know, both say the Chinese ecosystem and the Western ecosystem have their own capabilities, maybe everyone relaxes a little bit. It's not not confrontational. I
0: I really do. I don't think it's a bad thing to have more balance. And if you go way back, I'll just get geeky for a minute here, but but hey, this is a geeky show. Um, <laughs> if we go, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, it's a compliment. If we go way back to kind of the thir- 1930s, you know, when some of the neoliberal ideas were crafted, thinkers back then, like uh, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, was worried that, say, having a single global reserve currency like the dollar would actually create imbalances and force one country to do all the consuming and another country to do the production. So these are these are things that we've sort of known about and you know we made various policy choices for various reasons over the years but I think the pendulum is actually now shifting back to more of a middle ground. Now I'm not I don't want to be panglossian and I'm not saying that this is not going to come with some major major challenges and some bumps. You know the world is not flat, the world is bumpy right now, but I do think if we play our cards right getting to a place of better balance economically will be good for everyone
3: I I, I think that I think that's right um, it, was, it was kind of funny I was preparing uh, this weekend you know for the interview and you know looking at but some of the stuff he'd written on manufacturing <laughs> and there was this um, I think it was a front page story in the New York Times about this guy who had a sock manufacturing business where he sourced it in China and then decided no I'm gonna start making them in San Diego and he you know, he basically said, "You know, we're entering what he thinks is an era of hyper localization., um, Absolutely. Which I thought- That's,
0: that was my friend David uh, or sorry, my friend uh, Peter Goodman's piece. He's actually doing a book on this on this topic and has been, you know, um exploring these issues. So yeah, i I completely agree. It's funny. I just had a um I was in bo- outside Boston, um I don't know, a couple weeks ago to uh, do a, a, I've done a three-part documentary to go along with the book, um, which is available on the FT's website. And I was filming the third part and it's on additive manufacturing. And I was, I saw this amazing company. And there's many of them uh, like this, but this one happened to be called Vulcan Forms. It came out of MIT, funded by a Palo Alto um, venture capital group called Eclipse. And it basically can manufacture entire production lines for aerospace, automotives, department of defense using additive manufacturing. You can, you,
3: can you explain what um, additive manufacturing is?
0: Yeah. So additive is um, it's what we used to call 3d printing. And it was kind of like a quaint thing for, you know, hobbyists to do in their, in their basement. And basically it takes the techniques of, of printing in- inkjet printing, where you're layering material on one layer at a time. And it translates that to the physical world using uh, materials like metals or plastics, resins. And so you can literally spray paint a part, quite a detailed part. I mean, imagine like a three-dimensional snowflake um, spray painted out of metal. That's something that you can make in real time in you know the, the course of minutes or hours in one of these additive factories. Now, the problem has always been scale. You could do this stuff, but you couldn't do it at scale. That's now changing as the technology has evolved. And so Vulcan is one of these companies that can now print in a single factory tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of parts in you know in hours, in days. Um, it can be printing, say, a jet engine part one day and then shift the very next day and do... An electronic component. Um, And so it's almost like, if you remember Henry Ford's old River Rouge factory, where, you know, you get steel going in one end and cars going out the other, it's that kind of vertical integration, but across industry at scale being done in a way that's much more efficient and less carbon heavy than say carving something out of a hunk of material. Uh, You're, you're using just the material that you need Um, The knowledge of how to make the product lives in the software and the material can be printed anywhere. It could be done in Turkey. It could be done in China. And in fact, it is, it could be done, you know, where you're sitting or where I'm sitting and uh, that kind of hyper localization, I think is really going to revolutionize industry.
3: Yeah, you know, as you you talked a little bit about that in the book and you made a point that I hadn't thought about, uh I made mean, a lot of points I hadn't thought about. But this, you know, cuz I think a lot about kind of macroeconomic issues like inflation and you know the I guess the prevailing narrative is that localization or deglobalization is going to be inflationary. The cost cost uh, you know we we lose that kind of specialization. But when you talk about additive manufacturing, in particular, you had this uh, notion that, hey, you know, if a, an auto dealership, let's say, needs a part, um, instead of waiting for the part, it could print it, you know, potentially. And so you have a situation where you get potentially efficiencies and maybe even deflationary outcome from from the technology of being able to make things Make things local.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean you've hit on two really important points. First of all, this idea of being able to kind of get um, a just-in-case backup to just-in-time, you know, where, oh, okay, gosh, Russia's just invaded Ukraine, so what am I going to do? Well, I am going to print some parts. In fact, during the pandemic, um, you know, respirator parts were 3D printed. Um, There there were a lot of ways in which this was used as an emergency stopgap. But the other thing, and this is really profound, actually, is the potentially deflationary... Effect of technology, and and I really believe. Um, in fact, I my column out um, this this Monday is about this. I think we are at a point in industry and technological innovation in industry that is going to mirror the sort of 2007 moment where you had the iPhone come out, and then suddenly you get the app economy, and you get all these sort of shifts in the consumer space and consumer behavior. I think we are going to see just a depth of technology integration in industry, which represents 70, 75% of the world economy, that is gonna be very, very new, will be very deflationary, will propel a lot of growth. The challenge, of course, will be jobs. How many jobs is it gonna create? What kind of jobs is it gonna create? I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that as with the app economy, we got entire new job categories that we wouldn't have expected. I'm hopeful that that may be the case as well, but I will say that a lot of these factories, you know, you go in and they're like clean rooms, you know, and they've got five people in, you know, a twenty thousand square foot operation. It's very—it's not your grandfather's factory. Let's put it that way.
3: Yeah, I, I've seen um, I've seen that. I've seen um, examples of you know 3D printing or additive manufacturing in terms of building houses, um, but you know, t- there's there's other types of jobs that are created. You don't necessarily have as many people um, laying bricks, but you do, you know, the, the machines need to be serviced. Um, it's not 100% automated. Um, so I, I, you know, I agree with you. Hopefully there there will be some kind of higher quality jobs um, created as part of that. I wanted to maybe, if we could move um, just in the last few minutes from kind of the physical world to the non physical world. You have a, a, a chapter um, called, uh, toward the end of the book, called Digital Power to the People. And in some ways, I was a little surprised to see that chapter in the book because my first reaction is, well, what's that got to do with a localized economy? Um, and you you tell the story of Audrey Tang. Who's the Taiwan's uh, digital minister, and it was kind of quite quite a moving story because you know you say well you know Taiwan there's probably no place on earth that's been subject to as much disinformation campaigns as Taiwan yet emerging from this is this kind of new way to think about data and how it can be used to just to support democracy and actually Taiwan's experienced less fragmentation. Than a lot of democracies, Um, can you tell us the story of uh, uh, of Audrey a little bit and how she's been able to, you know, kind of use data to support democracy, but but also why you think that's part of the kind of localized economy? Why that why that fits in with the narrative of your of your story?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Let me answer that latter question first. So, why is data part of this localization story? Well, if you think about you know, most of the high growth areas of the economy at this stage are run on data. You know, I mean, we are we are living, like it or not, in the age of surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff would put it. And data is you know you might call it the new oil. It is what powers growth for a lot of industries. You know, it started off as something that the big platform tech companies used um, as a as an ad tech function, and that's that's still the case. But now. Companies of all stripes are collecting our data, using our data. In some cases, to build better products and services that we that we like. I, as I said in my second book, you know, have some have some issues with how how that's done and how it should be regulated. But I started with the, the point of view of, gosh, if if data is living in all of us, and that's where the wealth is. Well, then that's hyperlocal. I mean, that means that that where wealth resides is literally within the individual. So let's start to think, and this kind of came out a little bit of my, my second book and trying to think of how can we move to a world of data that is not degrading our humanity, our democracy. Um, and, and I became kind of inspired by certain stories that I saw about how digital activists, um, one of which is Audrey Tang, Uh, who is the digital minister of Taiwan, but but others, labor union representatives, um, um, nonprofit groups, were we're finding ways to harness the power of data and the wealth being created and put it back in the hands of the individuals that were actually giving that data. So um, before I get into Audrey, let me just give you one example to kind of help solidify that. Um, In the Philippines, um, fishing is a big industry, And the fishermen um, who are going out to make their catches every day have really good information, like better information than um, a lot of governments about what's actually in the sea and how certain fish groups are doing and what the environment looks like in a given um, water. And so um, a nonprofit group actually got together and helped these fishermen to pool data and then give it to um, some environmental groups that are trying to track the health of of fish and and ocean life, and many of these fishermen are now making as much from actually selling back their data to these environmental groups than they are from their fish. So that's an example of the power of data. Now, as to Audrey, can I,
3: can, uh, Roda, can I ask because you had this you had this idea called a uh, data unions? Is that what? you would consider to be an example of a data union
0: yeah it's it's one example of this sort of collectivization of data and and allowing an authority be it a nonprofit group or a union perhaps to help individuals to take back some of the wealth and power it's very difficult you and i like if i just decide gosh i want to get back all the data wealth that i've been giving to any number of platform tech firms that's kind of hard But if I had a union or a collective body of some kind that was helping to monitor how the data is being collected, who's got it? I mean, the technology exists to to track this now, but we haven't really had an advocate on the side of individuals. You know, we've had the, and this is one of the problems of, of surveillance capitalism in general there tends to be an asymmetry of power where the big companies have a lot of information. And the rest of us don't have that much access to information. But if there were um, a moderator on our side, and I think unions could play that role, you know, things could be a little different. So, and that's happening, by the way. I mean, in in, in both California and in Europe, there are groups that are trying to kind of make this happen. Um, now, going to your question about Audrey, Audrey's the digital minister of Taiwan. She's a technologist who's worked um, for a number of, of big brand name companies. Um, but is is you know native Taiwanese and wanted to help to create a different kind of system, one that would stand in contrast to China's state-run surveillance capitalism, and use the power of data and technology to really empower individuals. And so um, she's part of a group called Radical Exchange, which is a it's a very interesting group. Um, Glenn Weil, the Harvard economist and Microsoft uh, advisor, is part of it. There's a number of other artists and scientists and economists that are looking to decentralize technology and allow the wealth from the tech sector to be spread more freely. So Audrey um, set up a system in Taiwan where individuals could be much more involved at a really granular level in participatory democracy. So, you know, let's say there is a measure about how we want to have our trash collected on certain days. You know, she created platforms that would allow individuals to weigh in in real time on that and that information was collated and then government would use it to actually make better decisions faster, which would then build trust in the administration that was doing the governing, which would then create people, uh, create a trend where people wanted to involve uh, themselves more with these digital interfaces. They wanted to vote more often. They wanted to get involved in civic society more often. And, you know, I wanna say that Taiwan is, um, it's a a more homogenous society. It's a smaller society. It's sort of easier to do these things in places like that or in Scandinavia or Estonia, which is also very digital. But it provides a model to say, hey, if government shows that it will help individuals access the power of technology and then use the data being given to them for purposes of better governance, that we can maybe create a virtuous circle here. And and that's what she's been doing. Um, She's also using techniques that um, are algorithmically possible now, like quadratic voting, where Mm -hmm. um, you... You know, oftentimes when you're voting on something within the context of a government, not so much in California because you you all have um, different systems, but at a national level, it's it's a binary choice. You know, um, it tends to not be a more nuanced choice. Um, But using quadratic voting, you can actually vote well on percentages or on a, a kind of a more nuanced approach to yeah, I want something done with my trash collection, 30% this way, 15% that way, 50% that way. You know, it just opens up the possibility of a lot more nuance in the electoral process. And I think that that's good for democracy too.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, Andrew, Andrew Yang's a big advocate of kind of changing the uh, the voting system. And, and his intuition is that, you know, you've got uh, you know extremes on both sides, but very small extremes. But they tend to be vocal. They dominate the primaries. So the candidates we we vote for in the main elections are representative of the tails, not the not the middle. And I think what Audrey's doing is, if you basically allow the middle to get a more direct voice, um, you probably find outcomes that that you know much more people are are happy with. I I uh, I don't know. My, my family lives in a, a, a deeply red area. And I, I personally live in a deeply blue area, but when I go back and I talk to my dad's neighbors, they, you know, <laughs> we get along just fine. I think there's a lot more common ground and maybe this is a way for that to, um, you know, to show through. So um, anyways, I, 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 agree I, said, more, I just,
0: by the way, I could not agree more. I really, you know, I, I had like a five minute fantasy at one point that I would run for that empty Senate seat in Indiana. Cause I was just like, I know these people and they're not represented by chunk by by Trump or Chuck Schumer. You know, I mean, I think that there is something in between that we are really missing.
3: Yeah, and that I you know appreciated that that message, um, and I think you even say that that you know longer term maybe we'll end up with a, you know a, a purpler. Uh, uh, you know, country than, than just just red and blue. Um, perhaps we could uh, just end with an example that you talked about at the end of the book, which is um, happening in Holland right now. And it's called the, I think it's called the 100 Homes Project. And, and I liked that because it seemed like what they were doing was, was pulling together, you know, various elements that you had talked about earlier in the book and bringing it all together into a kind of one, Project? Could you? Um, I'm not not sure if you agree with that characterization or not, but could you kind of explain a little bit about what they're what they're doing there?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and this is example one example of many around the world. Um, so uh, this is a development that is basically trying to take technology, kind of similar to the story we just spoke about regarding Audrey. And um, harness people's data to create a better city. In this case, and so um, they're building um, what's known as a 15-minute city. It's uh, you know the idea is to put um, places of work, places um, you know, where people's homes are, schools, are hospitals, in a discrete area. And but they're adding a technological layer where there'll be a lot of data sharing and a lot of data gathering. People will buy into that, obviously, with with their um, uh, full, full disclosure and um, uh, knowing what they're giving up in terms of privacy. And in exchange, the data will Thanks be for used to, to basically top traders create... Unblocked. A if you, feel you learned city, something of value um, from today's episode, the best way
1: to stay better, updated is to uh, go on over to iTunes and subscribe patterns, to the show so um, that you'll be sure to get all the the new episodes and as they're released. Run
0: we have some and amazing guests example, lined up. For you. And to again, ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest
1: rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and how how it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time Top Traders Unplugged.
0: I find very heartening. You know, I mean, we often hear that, you know, we're living in a surveillance world and the horses out of the barn and, but there are so many experience uh, experiments and decentralization going on right now. And um, so this is just one of many, and I, I'm very heartened by it.
3: Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great place to end because um, it's, it's an optimistic, note and the, the book is very uh, optimistic and it's not only optimistic but it's uh, there's a lot of detail interesting stories interesting characters um, it's called homecoming the path to prosperity in a post-global world and uh, Rana thanks so much for you know for taking the time to talk about your book and, and for writing the book and and uh, we really re- wish you all the best
0: oh thanks Kevin thanks for having me
3: And with that, I'm going to uh, pass it back over to Niels.
2: Thank you so much, Rana and Kevin, for a delightful conversation on so many important topics that we are faced with today. Now, as most of you know, I have been talking myself about deglobalization for a while, and I thought it was fascinating to hear that Rana had this on her radar even five years ago, when this for sure was not part of the general narrative. I also find her point about how extreme the recent decade or two has been in terms of exchanging cheap capital and cheap labor between the U.S. and China very interesting and what the implications of that has been. Now, big food as a topic was also very important and to hear how concentrated this industry is in the U.S. is pretty amazing, but also how inefficient the supply chains have become um, because of this. And finally, the research into decentralization of food production using Star Trek-like technologies and additive manufacturing just blows my mind and I'm sure we will hear much more about this in the future. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Rana's and Kevin work as well as getting a copy of their books because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.